0: Hey, you've checked out another episode of the Good Advice Podcast, and this is round two. Welcome back to another episode of the Good Advice Podcast. In this is round two. It's when we sit down with not just some of my favorite guests, but your favorite guests who come back to the show to give us an update on all the amazing things that they're doing. We're going to get some new insights today and learn more about how you can grow your business. Joining us today is Scott Miller. And if you haven't checked out Scott's first episode, what the heck are you doing? You got to go back and check out his first episode where we talked about his book, Management Mess to Leadership Success. Today, we're talking about the follow-up to that book, the second book that he just published of a 10-part series. It's called Manage, excuse me, Marketing Mess to Brand Success, 30 Challenges to Transform Your Organization's Brand and Your Own. I'm excited to talk more about it today. Scott, it's great to have you here today.
1: Hey, Blake, my honor. Thank you for the platform and uh, shining your spotlight on me for the second time.
0: Scott, I have to ask, for, you know, the people who are listening can't see, but for the wa- those watching on video, are you in prison by chance?
1: <laughs> well, it looks like it. I'm actually in a padded room. Uh, <laughs> I, I have three sons, as you know, that are six, nine, and 11. And we live in, in Utah. And so they are spending all week up at a um, dog sled camp. There's like an Iditarod, Iditarod dog sled team. And in the summer, they train these huskies. So my boys are up at the dog sled camp in the morning. So, I've had um, members of a country club up in Park City, Utah. So, I'm in a padded room in the basement of this country.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, I, I guess anyone who has three boys is inevitably going to have a padded room. I guess that's the parenting insight there.
1: I had not thought of that, but funny and true. You're right, Blake.
0: I have, my daughter is just over a year. I don't know if if you have any like advice on discipline or she's, she's moved from the cute phase to like, I handed her some food and she said, she, she doesn't know like anything more than like three words, but one of them's no. And she said no. And just threw the food onto the floor. And I was like, okay. uh." Advice
1: is (laughs) not to parenting advice from me because I actually do not enjoy being a parent. I'm one of those few parents that just straight up tells you, I don't enjoy parenthood. And some days I'm good. Some days I'm horrible. Everybody says, you know, it gets better. Well, it hasn't gotten any better for me. So I think you should have asked those questions. I got expertise.
0: But it ain't parenting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This padded room might be for you some days, I guess, <laughs> for the really hard days. But
1: like literally, is padded. These walls
0: are padded. <laughs> great. Well, Scott, like I said, um, man, it was so it was so fun having you on the show the first time around, and I did mention to the audience they need to go back and listen to it. Um, you had some really incredible insights from that first episode. Um, funny enough, randomly, I was thinking about that episode recently <clears throat> because you had this sound bite. And we'll just give the audience a little bit of a spotlight on that first episode. You had this awesome soundbite on how you were coaching uh, some, some different individuals on their own leadership and their organization. And you had one leader in particular who said something along the lines of, uh, well, some of my employees aren't trustworthy or they're not honest. Like what's, like, what's their deal? What's going on with this? And your answer, I think, was so insightful. You said, well, you know that, that's your problem. Like that's something that's a culture that you've nurtured that you've created. And, uh, I can see on your face you're like, Oh wow, I said that. Okay, nice. (laughs) Uh, But, but yeah, it was, it was just a great episode.
1: Well, I bet it was in the context. I don't remember exactly Blake, but I have often said if your people are lying to you, it's because you've not created an environment where it's safe to tell you the truth Mm -hmm. because people lie when they're fearful. Mm -hmm. They lie when they're embarrassed. They lie when they are concerned about the consequences but if you create a culture where it is safe for people to share with you bad news, mm-hmm. they can share their fears, their anxieties, their jealousies. Now, if someone is a pathological liar, it's your fault. <laughs> right, but right. I think nine times out of ten yeah. or more, as a leader, it's your job to create an environment where it is safe and encouraged to tell the truth for for back any for, for making sure that that lacks a backlash, right? That mm-hmm. your, your temper, your response is such that you really appreciate them telling you the truth, no matter how horrifying or concerning or frustrating it might be. I think it's important. There's some corollaries to parenthood there, aren't there?
0: <laughs> well, Scott, just for the listeners who um, are freshening up on your bio, I'll remind our listeners that uh, you know, you've know you had this 30-year career with Franklin Covey, uh, Chief Marketing Officer. I'm sure some of those on-the-job insights are par- partly what has informed your book, uh, Marketing Mess. Um, and uh, excuse me, a marketing mess to brand success and uh, currently senior advisor on thought leadership. Um, you lead a lot of the conversation on leadership and strategy. You also have your own podcast, which I love fellow podcasters, podcasters. your own podcast, uh called On Leadership with Scott Miller, uh one of the world's largest and fastest growing leadership podcasts. And uh yeah, I mean I'm I'm just excited to to pick your brain today and get back into the conversation on really a lot of these questions that our listeners are thinking about, they're wondering about. So, it's great to have you back today. Let's
1: go. Great. Thank you, Blake. Thank you.
0: Well, let's talk about the book. Let's talk about the book, uh, Marketing Mess to Brand Success. What, you know, you mentioned you're having this 10-part series. Why did this need to yeah. be the next book in the series?
1: Well, so the first book, as your readers and, and or rather listeners and viewers know, was Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Could Follow. And after 30 years in a leadership development firm, Franklin Covey, You know, I had a few messes myself as a a leader and as a teacher of leaders. So that book did well enough that the publisher did extremely well, um, candidly. And so the book, the publisher came to me and said, you know what? We think there is some great insight in your message. My message is, you know, just own your mess. Everyone's got a mess going on. And as a leader, when you make it safe, you own your mess, you make it safe for others to own theirs. So I thought, you know what? There's a whole series. So I, I developed bunch of topics, marketing mess, sales mess, relationship mess, parenting mess, communication mess. There's a whole series of them. And the reason that marketing mess was number 10, sorry, number two, sorry, next, which I just released is because I was the CMO, as you said, of a public global brand. And there were a lot of successes and messes that were sort of pop up mind for me, whether it be, you know, websites or databases or uh, marketing or personas or customer journeys, you name it, right? Whatever it was. So they were top of mind, having just come off a nearly eight-year career as a CMO, which is almost three times the national average of a CMO. It's about you know two, two, two years, sometimes two and a half years. So that's why marketing was next. Job mess to career success comes out in January of 2022, and then communication mess. So I'm kind of, what's fresh on my mind sure. is what I'm writing about. Uh, job mess is finished. Communication mess is almost done. Mm-hmm. And then following that will be sales mess to client success. Kind of They're kind of, they come to me usually as I just sort of end a phase of my life or career. Sure, I can't write parenting mess <laughs> to launch success. Yes. Because although the parenting is a mess, the launch hasn't happened yet. So yeah, stay yeah,
0: tuned. Yeah. Sure. Why, why is the, I, I didn't know this statistic about the average tenure of a chief marketing yeah. officer only being two or three yeah. years. Yeah. What's the reason for that?
1: Well, I think there's several, right? I think a lot of it is because marketers tend to be high on energy and high on creative and high right brains. They kind of do their thing and they move on. There's some truth to that. I also think that in many organizations, sales um, makes marketing the scapegoat. That it's easier to replace a marketing leader than it is a sales leader.
0: Mm.
1: Whether you're a you know boutique firm, or whether you're a, you know a global company, that typically the stewardship of a sales leader is much more significant. They have you know, hundreds of salespeople or a case on a smaller company, maybe two or three more. But I think once you get a sales leader that's competent, I think oftentimes organizations will do pretty much anything to keep them. I think that marketing leaders are often viewed as being somewhat um, disp- disp- dispensable, right? That we can kind of plug and play. That may or may not be true, but in most organizations, even small startups, sales is king. Revenue mm-hmm. is king. Right and when you get a great sales leader in she or he might choose to you know point the finger or place the blame on marketing and marketing gets the whack and i think that's true more often than not
0: so obviously you know you're you're incredibly gifted in what you do the 8 years you spent as cmo being nearly 3 times as long as the national average you know part of yeah. that obviously is, speaks to your skill set uh, i would venture to assume that in your company, there's a lot of freedom given to you to really, um, you know, I'm I'm comparing it to some of these other brands where, uh, maybe marketing has a a tighter leash around it, or there's a lot more, um, I can't think of the wording for it. Um, a closer magnifying glass since sales is is directly tying to revenue. Uh, were you able to be more creative? Were you able to be, um, kind of make your own decisions? I mean, what's the, what's the reason for the, the longer tenure in your company?
1: I'm going to answer the question a little bit different than how you asked it. I I think the reason that I stayed, I don't know that I had more or less creativity. I mean, Franklin Covey is a fairly conservative brand, right? We guard our reputation more than anything, right? Uh, We don't have any any widgets to sell. We don't sell stuff, right? We have intellectual property. We train organizations and leaders. So our reputation is our most valuable asset, probably tied with our intellectual property. I think the reason I stayed as long as I did was because I was one of the unique CMOs that saw myself as responsible for revenue as the chief sales officer. Mm-hmm. I didn't hide from it. I was right there. happened to be a him. I was right there with him. We thought we didn't agree on everything in private, but publicly we were aligned. And I think my tenure was reflected more because the CEO saw me as being as crucial to revenue and profit as he did the sales leader. They all could have been females, males, doesn't matter. They happen to both be men in this case. That was really the key, I think, reason for my longevity. Now, I was given ample opportunity. The CEO had enormous trust in me not to compromise the brand, Mm -hmm. to take calibrated risks, to try new things. I never surprised the board or the CEO, I would come in and say, I'm thinking of doing this. What do you think about that? And they were generally pretty conservative, much more conservative than I wanted them to be. But I'll tell you, at the, I earned the CEO's trust. You know, Jack Welch was a good friend before we passed of our CEO. And Jack Welch used to approve every single advertisement for GE, I mean, micromanagement to the 10th. <laughs> and in some ways, my CEO liked that idea. He liked micromanaging that because he wanted... To earn my trust. And after, you know, three or four years in the job, I didn't have to run campaigns past him. I, we had a good understanding of what was my level of empowerment and mm-hmm. when should I when should I seek his counsel? And I think he trusted me implicitly to make good decisions. So that combined with him seeing me as crucial to revenue, cash, margin, and eBITDA, that's what led to my unusual longevity. Not because I was super talented, I was just wise. <laughs> And I know, I knew where I was empowered and where I needed to ask, you know, for endorsement.
0: Let's let's talk about marketing more in detail. A lot of the people who are listening to the podcast, they are small business owners. Some of them are um, fairly young in their business, maybe in the first two or three years of their business. And for many of the people listening cash is king. They're thinking about sales. Yeah, they're thinking yes. about bringing in more money. Uh, and uh, I would venture that many of them are wondering, okay, what, what does marketing look like for the small business owner? And this feels like a topic that everyone has a different opinion on. You get on social media, you have 10 million different marketing gurus who are yelling at you saying, you need to be doing this, you need to be trying that. Um, and they all have a different product or service that they're trying to sell you. Give us your take on on what how should a small business owner... How, do they, how should they be thinking about their marketing strategy?
1: Obviously different per industry and size of business totally. and, and life, totally. lifespan of business. But here's some fundamentals. One is, um, I think you should not leave it up to chance. I think you should be very clear, talk very straight, right? We need a five times return on every marketing investment within you know 90 days or 180 days, or I know we can't measure everything, but what we can measure, we should be very disciplined about that. So don't tell me we can't measure anything. Tell me what we can measure, and let's talk about that. I don't think that every CEO or founder is a marketing genius. Don't try to be. But you should be a communication genius, hmm. meaning you should be uber clear on what are your expectations. You should be agile enough to, to change expectation, right, and say, let, let's go after a five-to-one return in six months. Does that sound reasonable? Or could we go after a 10-times return You know, in June? Is that reasonable? Should should we be using this channel or that channel? Or should we try four channels and decide what's best? I I think what every leader needs to have in common is that you are in sync on expectations with your marketing implementer, that you are in sync with objectives, that you're clear on, we're going to try this for 90 days and no one's to blame. We're all in this together. I'm not going to scapegoat you, but let's make sure that we all are very clear on what is our investment and let's check in weekly. How is it going? Should we change this? Should we change that? Is the message more about us? Should be more about them? Um, I think just setting clear expectations and having a high courage relationship with your marketer and be willing to turn on a dime when necessary. I think most CEOs, most founders probably think they know more about marketing than they do. Mm. You've got to provide some latitude to your marketing Team, whether it be team of one or team of five, the key is just open, transparent communication, clear expectations, and ability to turn on a dime.
0: It's I, like, not working. I like your appreciation for data. It's very methodical and it's very strategic. And as you've probably seen yourself, many small business owners, uh, especially the ones that are particularly small, maybe only one or two employees, or maybe, maybe their team are. It's comprised of 1099s, uh, it can be a bit of a rarity for business owners to have that methodical, strategic approach to business um, I I like telling the story of one guy who was a print shop owner doing a million dollars in sales and had no idea how much he was selling, didn't know really anything about um, what was coming in and out of his business other than just the bottom line revenue. Is this something that people can learn in terms of being more methodical and strategic? Or is this something that when you look at successful businesses, some people just have it and they go on to be bigger and better and some people don't?
1: Yes and yes. that's not meant to be funny is there's no question you can learn to be more disciplined in your thought, more disciplined in your action. If it's not working for you, then you need to change. Mm. I think that some things can be measured. Some things cannot, right? Some things are about building a brand. You can't measure those things. You have no idea if that billboard is driving Coca-Cola. You have no idea if that magazine advertisement booked a Marriott room. You don't know, right? Some things are brand building. And then there are other marketing investments that you absolutely should hold your team's feet to the fire on quantifiable return. It might be direct mail, it might be um, a social post, it might be a email campaign, it, it might be some kind of, you know, promotion that's time dated. So you have to try a lot of things. Let me I tell you, I think one of the smartest things I've learned is from Karen Dillon. She's the former editor of the Harvard Business Review. And she wrote a book with Clayton Christensen called How Will You Measure Your Life? It's a phenomenal book. I highly recommend it called How Will You Measure Your Life? Clayton Christensen, of course, you know the genius innovations author and professor at the Harvard Business School. And in their book, they wrote that uh, 93% of organizations empirically, quantifiably, that achieve success financially do so with an emergent strategy, not the deliberate strategy they set out with. And Think about that. Only 7% of the time do organizations achieve financial success with the original idea of the owner or founder. That 93% of the time, they had to pivot. They had to be open to influence. They had to change their mind. They had to change the data. They had to change the way they were looking at things. They had to decide, when am I justifying my boondoggle campaign with data that, quite frankly, if out a different way, would deny you know, the way that I'm looking at it. I think it just comes to being open to being influenced and being willing to change your mind, but also to your point, what can we measure? If we can, it should be done. How should we interpret the data? There's things we can't measure that let's not cook up data to measure things because I'm a data wonk. It's just, you have to know, you know, kind of know what you're looking for though. And be humble enough to admit when you're trying to validate your own idea, right? Cause anybody can make data work for you. If you try mm-hmm. just, you know, I think one of the best things that leaders can do is to be vulnerable. Hmm. If your genius idea isn't working, call <laughs> everybody around and say, whose idea was this? And then raise your hand and say, well, that was stupid. Let's talk about what we should be doing. Sure. Those are the kind of leaders that marketers want to work for. Hmm. I also think, round up this topic, too many times marketers and business owners and leaders get passionate about certain marketing campaigns because it excites them. Right? Let's create a viral video. Let's create a bumper sticker. Let's create a you know a social media campaign. Let's do direct mail. You should be doing, implementing what your market responds to. You may hate it. It may not be your preferred venue or preferred marketing channel. Don't let your own proclivities and your own need to be validated, your own creative energies cloud what you should be doing. Think about it more. Strategically through your clients' lens versus your own.
0: It reminds me of one business owner who was losing customers in droves, and in complaining about it, he said, "Well, if they don't like what I'm selling, they can go somewhere else." And I remember thinking, "They they are going." Yeah, <laughs> that's, they are. <laughs> that's the whole point. I love this segue. And actually, I was looking at the um, thirty ch- the thirty challenges of your book, Marketing Mess to Brand Success, and the first chapter is it's the customer stupid. Yeah. And I, I want to talk more about this because it feels like we're segueing into this. Tell me more about this first chapter of your book. Yeah.
1: So, this was if you buy the book, you can read the story. Uh, this book was based on the 1992 US presidential campaign where then Governor Bill Clinton and Senator Al Gore were running against the incumbent George H.W. Bush and Vice President Quayle. And President Bush had just come off, I think, a 93% approval rating for the first Gulf War. He was kind of considered to be unbeatable. But the economy was going in the, in, in the tank. And so it was James Carville and Paul Begala, the two now very famous Democratic political operatives that sat in their Little Rock office. And they had a sign that basically said, it's the economy, stupid. I think it was slightly different than that, but colloquially it became known as it's the economy, stupid. And They ran against an incumbent president. They beat him from two kind of no-name, unknown Governors and senators, no offense to Arkansas, but not exactly a launching pad, you know, for the president.
0: <laughs> as an Arkansan, I take nothing personal. So. Thank you. <laughs> um,
1: but a four-term governor, right, if I'm not mistaken, in Arkansas. So anyway, I co-opted that idea of it's the economy stupid and wrote it as it's the customer stupid because I do think it's so common for all of us, whether you're the CMO of a large company or the entrepreneur of a, you know a million-dollar business, you're just starting out with five employees to be fiercely focused on the client, because the gravitational pull, Blake, is for owners. I'm an entrepreneur. I have a full-time employee. I have five contractors. I'm right there in that you know sort of seven-figure number. so focused on what I need, right? The books that I need to publish, and my income, and my revenue, to, to be thinking about what do my clients need? Who are my clients? Do I know who they are? Are they different segments for different markets? And someone's got to be the same voice. It always turns the conversation into, well, did the client say they needed that? Mm. And is the client enjoying that? And is the client telling us they want us to change this? Someone's got to be that sane voice in the whirlwind of all that is me. And also make sure that my messaging is focused on our client. Because most of the time, the messaging is focused on you. How many offices you have and all your capabilities and what is your passion? What are your values? Newsflash. No one cares what your values are. They don't care about your mission. They care about their values and their missions and how your service or product can solve their problem. Donald Miller, right, the genius marketing mind who endorsed my book with the book, you know, Building a Story Brand, says, you know, most people's messaging sounds like a cat chasing a rat and a windshine factory. And that your messaging needs to be insanely clear. And focus solely on the client. Can they find themselves in your messaging? So the first chapter is all about staying focused on the client. It's natural to be focused on your business.
0: What about people who they they they're listening and they're saying, yes, it is so incredibly clear what I'm doing, what I'm offering. It's all about the customer. Great. And and yet their customers are thinking, what do you do? What is this? What are you selling me? What's, yeah. what's up with that disconnect? it feels like this happens. I feel like I've been through this with my own business where you know, in your own mind, it's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. It keeps me up at night because I'm so excited about it. And then your customers look at it and they go, eh, you know, like they just, they're just, they either doesn't click with them, it doesn't ping with them, it doesn't register. Talk to me a little more about that disconnect that happens sometimes.
1: Well, this is natural. This isn't, this doesn't mean you're not competent or that you're an outlier. If your messaging is working for you, then why would you listen to this podcast? <laughs> right, you're fine. I, I think it's again back to some humility. You know, I think uh, it was Stephen Covey that said humble leaders are more concerned with what is right than being right. It's a question I ask myself when I enter most conversations with my wife, with a client, with a funder, with my banker. Right, I wanna, I wanna, I do, I wanna be right. But if I want to be effective, I want to care yeah. about what is right versus being right. Um, I'll bet the vast majority of your time, your messaging is more about you. It's mm-hmm. more about the words that you use. It's more about the, that story that you want to share. Donald Miller's work is profound. Everyone here should pick up a copy of Building a Story Brand. It's an extraordinary book around understanding that easy temptation to have your messaging be in your language and not your client's language. I'll bet if if your listeners and viewers go out and ask your clients, so we call this, this, what do you call it? Mm -hmm. They'll call it something different because every organization has their own language. I call it engagement. They call it culture. I call it leadership. They call it productivity. Mm -hmm. I call it, you know, it's solving inventory turns. They think, well, no, that's actually really solving margin, right? Just Mm -hmm. make sure that you're, you're writing and speaking in the terms that your clients are using which leads me to a different chapter. And that is, I forgot what number it is, but it's um, your smallest viable market. Seth Godin is a good friend of mine, one of the marketing geniuses in the world. And in his book, Blake, he writes this concept, but he has a book called This Is Marketing. It's a phenomenal marketing book, much better than mine. He talks <laughs> about how most people are taught in business school to you know look at your TAD, right? your total addressable market. That's great for your small business loan or your venture capital presentation, but the fact of the matter is most of us should be looking not at our largest viable market, but at our smallest viable market. Who are the fewest number of people that can buy our business that will make our business explode? Because the odds are, if you go out and interview 60 clients, they're going to call things 60 different ways. But if you get really tight on what is the circumstance our client is in, what's the ideal client for us, get really clear on their language It's going to impact your marketing, your communication. Use their words, not yours.
0: I love this insight. And it leads me to wonder about, and I'm sure you have a great insight here on really developing thick skin as a business owner. Because undoubtedly, as you're reaching out to customers, as you're talking to customers, uh, I have found that not every customer is fully, I guess, polite about what they think about your product. Uh, in fact, many people are act very open and honest about not just your product, but their experience in using it or, or their experience with your service. And I've seen even business owners who will avoid talking to those kinds of customers because wow that feedback really hurt my feelings or i had i had one customer who they had a stack of feedback forms and they had divided it out into a smaller stack and i said well what's what is that smaller stack and it's like oh we we already know they aren't happy with us so we're not even gonna go through those and so it seems like a lot of times we really and, and maybe this goes back to the conversation on ego and humility how often do you find that people are able to really develop that thick skin versus the person who's really just looking for feedback that is just feeding into their own ego, their own idea of how things should go, yeah. uh, and et cetera?
1: Yeah. I'm going to use your words against you for a moment, okay? Um, as, as a teaching point, I don't think it's about thick skin. And okay. I used to think it was, Blake. So thanks for just be, being vulnerable for a moment. You know, on my podcast, which I host, which is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast, hits by $8 million a week. And uh, I was inter- I ready to interview Viola Davis once, the famous actor-producer, right? Yeah. She wrote a passage in Brene Brown's book, Dare to Lead, around how, you know, it's not right to have thick skin. What you want is sort of transparent, translucent skin. Because with thick skin, nothing gets in, but nothing gets out. What you want is translucent skin. Stuff comes in, stuff comes out. So I'm going to use your example as a teaching moment. I used to think it was thick skin also. Like thick skin was important. Mm-hmm. But the problem is not, nothing gets in, but also nothing gets out as well. So I think the goal is to have translucent, transparent skin. Is to create a self-awareness where you can kind of get to the root cause of why is this client saying this? What was their experience? I've read a whole chapter about bruise hard, heal fast. Bruce hard and heal fast, right? It's your ego's attached to it. Shouldn't be more than a couple of minutes, but to really, what can you learn? I don't think think it's healthy to throw the baby with the bathwater out, right? Because, you know, I'll, I'll give a speech. There'll be, you know, 400 evaluations. 40 people will hate me. 330 will think that the sun is set on me. And 70 will have, like, you know, odd comments. He talked too fast or... He seems this or yeah.
0: comment on my hand. sexuality. Yeah. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> whatever. whatever. <laughs> they
1: make stuff up, right? Whatever yeah. it is. I right? tell it to my wife.
0: Yeah. So
1: <laughs> I think you just gotta have a good kind of you've got to kind of sure. play the chords well. Mm-hmm. Some of the best insights are the people that absolutely trash me mm-hmm. on Amazon. I don't fixate on them, but I'll spend a couple of minutes. I wonder why they had that experience with my book. Mm-hmm. I wonder why they said that. Not how dare them or try mm-hmm. to. I just think okay, so what was going on with them? Could, could I impact that? Could I control that? Or were they just in a bad mood or they hate tall, thin guys from Utah or whatever it is, right? Yeah. I think it's just not taking it personally. Bruise hard, heal fast, move on and ask yourself, what can I learn from that? Instead of having thick skin, have translucent skin. Take it in, let it go. In the process, what can I learn about it?
0: What does it look like to, to partner with someone to really like, parse going through that feedback. Cause sometimes it feels like it's hard or like you, you, you're analyzing feedback or you're, you're getting comments. And in your mind, it's leading you from, okay, I took this point of feedback and here's the conclusion I got from this. And you sort of, in some cases, we, the conclusion we get from it isn't actually what the, the, the customer was actually trying to communicate. so like, what's, what's the merit with, um, you know, partnering with people in your circle who you can share feedback with Uh, For people who have larger teams who can actually have those open and honest conversations. um, And maybe this is a bit of a throwback to management mess to leadership success, where sometimes employees will be really guarded in showing that feedback because they're worried of how it might reflect on them as an employee.
1: This is a multi-part question, but I think it's a, a profound competency that leaders must develop, which is... Creating a culture of feedback, not just where you provide it to others, which by the way is incumbent upon you as a leader is to have high courage conversations and move outside your comfort zone to give people feedback on their blind spots. And This is something you have to do and you do it in a way where you balance courage with diplomacy, but that's only one half of creating a culture of feedback is providing it to others. You have to make it safe for others to tell you their truth about you. And but the key in that is making it safe, right? Is surrounding yourself with people who are both champions and challengers. Hmm. Some of your most valuable feedback can come from people that don't like you. <laughs> and then you have to build the art and the discipline to know, okay, so is that feedback more about them? Is that their envy and jealousy? Or is that something I really should take into consideration? That, that, that comes with time, right? After you've built that discipline of kind of understanding what is their motive? What is their agenda? Are they envious? Are they jealous? Or no, is that actually feedback that I should take? I think you also can get too much feedback. Mm. And it can be it can be drowning for you. So I think great leaders are disciplined in surrounding themselves with high trust people that are equal number champions and challenger. By the way, someone can be both your champion and your challenger if their intent is right. Mm. And you know, I, I mean, with the world's largest leadership podcast, I get. No shortage of feedback on my interview skills, on the glasses that I wore that day, on whether or not my hair was positioned like they wanted, or I asked too many questions, or I told too many. I mean, it's like nonstop. And most of it goes through people on the production team, and they surface it to me. They say, Scott, we think you should read this. I read it. I do my best not to have a visceral reaction. I say, so what do you think? What what do you think? you showed this to me for a reason. Is this a blind spot of mine? Is this something that you've been telling me about that I haven't been listening to? Is this something you think I should address? I try to do it calm. They know that my initial reaction might be like, you know, a little bit flared up. They also know within about 30 seconds, I'll I'll calm down. Not 30 minutes, 30 seconds. I'll calm down and say, well, you've taken the courage to show this to me. You have my best interest in mind. I know that because I trust you. What is it I need to learn? Every leader, every leader should surround themselves with people who have your best interest in mind, that you trust that their intent is to grow the business, is to serve the clients, is to build a reputation, is to maybe sometimes protect you from yourself. That may be your spouse. It may be your uncle. It may be the most junior person in the company. That for whatever reason, she has your trust and she can take you on a walk with a Starbucks coffee and say, hey, can I give you feedback on last week's staff meeting? Yeah, you were a jackass. You called <laughs> Tina out and you hurt her feelings. Yeah. And I, I think I know why you did it, but you owe her an apology. Oh my gosh, that is like the biggest gift ever. Just hmm. surround yourself with people that are courageous enough to save you from yourself. I don't care how smart you are, your degrees, if you're the owner, you're the co-owner, you have blind spots. And it is, it is, it is the difference between successful leaders and unsuccessful leaders. Have they built a culture where they have surrounded themselves with people that, that they trust to build their self-awareness? Because you have blind spots just like your people have. And if you don't have trusted people in your life to tell you about them, you will continue to overplay your strengths
0: that will become your weaknesses. Where do you find people like this? I mean, we're, we're living in a time right now where many companies are thinking about um, filling their their, their um, job vacancies. There's all sorts of conversations on worker shortages. And a lot of people are thinking about, what does my team look like a year from now, two years from now, even five years from now? Where do you find the people that you're talking about who can be courageous enough to give you that feedback you really need as a leader?
1: Can I change the answer on you again? Change yep. the question? I don't think the question is, where do you find them? I think the question is, how do you develop them? Mm. Because anybody can be developed to give you feedback if you set the right conditions, where you sit down and you say, listen, this product is not going well, or "Or my speech at this conference seemed to, you know, whatever. You set the conditions where it's safe to tell you their truth, where someone can say, well, as a matter of fact, you know, you had 70 PowerPoint slides. You needed seven. Yeah. <laughs> matter of fact is, as you hit behind the podium, you should have come down into the audience. Sure. Fact is, you didn't do the prep work, right? You kind of, we, we tried to meet with you and talk to you about this segment of the audience, but you were too busy. And so you phoned it in. I think it's about developing the skill, convincing them that you really want to know the truth. Sitting them down and say, hey, Blake, hey, I really want to know the truth about how I did on your podcast. You're tempted to tell me I was great. You're tempted to want to not offend me because all of us, you know, have that gene in us, but I really want to know. I really want to know what I did well, what I didn't do well, because I want to be a better guest to all my future podcast hosts. So you know what? I want you to move outside your comfort zone. If you need to write it down, write it down and hand it to me. If you need to like type it to me, whatever it is, but I'm craving just because I'm the boss. Just because I am the owner or the guest does not mean that I'm right or that I'm great. You've got to set the conditions where it's safe for people to feel comfortable giving you the feedback. And then when they do, you cannot refute it, dispute it. You can't blame it on somebody else. You can't drop the F-bomb. You've got to just say, Blake, that hurt. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for like caring enough about sure. me to actually share that with me. That took a lot of guts. Sure. Why do you think I do that? Why, why do you think I say that? Any insights into that? I think it's less finding the people and it's more growing and grooming them.
0: Mm, I love that. It's a great answer. And uh, Scott, unfortunately, I know you have a hard stop here in a few minutes. This has been an awesome conversation. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you got to come back for a round two conversation uh, and, and shared. shared a lot more incredible insights. I don't know if I'm allowed to ask this as a final question or not, but do you have a favorite chapter in the book?
1: You know, it probably is Seth Godin's chapter. I I borrowed the concept, your smallest viable market from him with permission, because I think it is counterintuitive to every leader, every marketer, right? My book is for everyone. My restaurant's for everyone. Our product is for everyone. We're all boiling the ocean you cannot boil the ocean. Your product is not for everyone. Can I share a
0: short story? Yeah, of course. So you've
1: heard of the Roomba, right? The self-powered mm-hmm. vacuum cleaner. Well, it was originally named, um, I suck. I S U C K from a company called robot. Well, they had the wisdom to rename it, but originally when Roomba was launched, how the story goes is that after all their extensive QA testing, that uh, when they launched the Roomba, a significant number of them were coming back with um, burned out engines. And then and, and the number was being returned in like this amazing number is that it w- the experience of the customer wasn't matching the uh, QA testing process at all. And with further analysis, they realized that a surprising number of early Roomba purchasers were heart patients, people that had, had a triple bypass surgery or had a heart transplant, and they were Um, not allowed to do any strenuous exercise upon return from the hospital, right? They were not allowed to vacuum their homes. And so for a variety of reasons, they were not allowed to leave their homes. These people wanted to have clean homes. They wanted to entertain. They also wanted companionship that the majority of early Roomba owners, even to this day, name their Roomba, Fred or Tina or, you know, whatever. My mom has named hers Betty. And so it's interesting that these, these, these heart patients were running their Zumbas like three and four times a day because they wanted their house to be cleaned and they wanted companionship. Now, yeah. I don't know if, if, if Roomba from iRobot could have known that, but their smallest viable market very well could have been the elderly that wanted companionship, mm-hmm. And they could have been heart patients. The, po- the point is I think we all try to boil the ocean and it takes unnatural discipline to define and focus on your smallest viable market. What is their exact circumstance? I don't care if you're a realtor. I don't care if you own a restaurant. If you've created a new you know, sippy cup, you should know what is the exact circumstance your client is in and go after that market. I think our egos and our needs are to go after everybody. My book is not for everyone. This book is probably a very narrow market. And by the way, it hasn't sold nearly as much as the management book because it's a smaller market. It's people that are creating Marketing as their career, I tell you, I, I think the I think the real buyer for my book is going to be sales leaders. It's going to be sales leaders that are frustrated with their marketing division. They're going to buy the book and they're going to give it to their sales departments or to their marketing departments. Mm-hmm. So I would argue that my favorite chapter is your smallest viable market because I think it can have the disproportionate largest return. Stop net fishing. Start f- spear fishing. And it takes, like I mentioned an unnatural focus and discipline. There will always be more better ideas than there is capacity to execute them. And as the leader, it is your job sometimes to to, to step up to the plate and to say, okay, we're going to do less. We're going to focus on less. We're going to use our time now to create our messaging and our marketing to a smaller market. Let's go crush that And then we'll go on. It's counterintuitive.
0: It's it's essentially the hedgehog principle from... Uh, it is exactly
1: good, the hedgehog good principle from Jim Collins. Good
0: yeah, day. it's a great concept. It's a powerful concept. And I love what you're sharing of, essentially, you can't be all things to all people. Um, although we often like to think we could be. So, yeah. Scott, we are out of time today. It's been such a great conversation. Thanks for joining me today. What, what's the next step? Obviously, we want our listeners to buy the book, uh, Marketing Mess to Brand Success. Well, other than that, is there a way for people to connect with sure. you? Stay connected to you? You, follow you, what have you? Sure.
1: You can visit scottjeffreymiller.com. All my books are there. My career coaching series is there. That is a online career coaching series. You can buy card decks that complement it. You can, you can follow me on social media. I'd love to have you connect to me on LinkedIn. Uh, but Scott Jeffrey Miller is all things in my world. Uh, I appreciate the spotlight again today. And thank you for the platform and the invitation back.
0: Thank you, Scott. Hey, for our listeners, I'm going to put the link to scottjeffreymiller.com. I'm also going to put the link directly to the book Marketing Mess to Brand Success, 30 Challenges to Transform Your Organization's Brand and Your Own. Both of those are going to be down in the episode description below for you to check out. Uh, and hey, if you've been following the podcast, what the heck are you waiting on? Make sure you click that subscribe button or that follow button so you keep getting good advice wherever you are. And don't forget, if you love the podcast, you want to support the podcast, you can go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash where you can even get your business advertised at the start of an episode. Again, it's patreon.com slash good advice. Hey, we appreciate you and we'll catch you later. See ya.